So this is why I think it, there, there's, there's massive danger in getting our names and our identities from culture. Because now we have to live up to it. If you allow yourself to get your, your, your identity and, and, and to get your name from culture, you now have to live up to something that you might not always be able to do. And additionally, these names or identities from culture may not necessarily always reflect God's purposes and God's desires for your life. You know, God has a name for us. So not only does culture actively seek to name you, not only do we tend to name ourselves, but like God has a name for you. God has an identity for you. And it says this in, in, in 1 John 3, 1. It says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what is it? Children of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So I have this strong belief that similar to how culture will, will seek to name us and similar to how uh, you know, we tend to name ourselves, that, that God is trying to name us as well. God actually names us. And so I think that the identity that you long for, the security, you know, the love, the respect, the validation, the value, the purpose, that that can actually be found as you begin to listen to what God has named you. Uh, so good to be back together again this week, uh, continuing on in our summer teaching series, Love and Lights, where we have been looking at a short book in the New Testament called First John. And uh, each week we have been uh, taking a different chunk of Scripture and sort of uh, diving deep into it. And uh, we're going to continue uh, to do that again today uh, here in week six. Uh, I, I think that uh, it's interesting you know, how short this book is, five chapters long, and yet we're dedicating 14 weeks to it. Uh, you know, uh, it might seem a little bit overkill, a little excessive, I'm not sure, but um, I think we're already starting to see just the impact that this, this short little book is supposed to have uh, in our life and in our spiritual formation, amen? I mean, I think there is so much in this uh, little book. It's just uh, uh, been uh, exciting to see kind of where we've been and uh, just pumped for where we're headed today as we uh, continue on here in uh, week six. Let me just go ahead and give you some uh, backdrop again. Let me just kind of bring you back up to speed. Maybe you've, you've missed a couple weeks or, or whatever. I just want to kind of like level the playing field here for a moment and just remind you, you know, this book was written by the Apostle John. Okay, uh, it's written towards the end of his life. Uh, he's in his mid to late 80s. And he is writing this letter after all that he's been through, right? He's writing this letter after, you know, all the good that he's experienced. So, you know, you, you think about his life. I mean, he has uh, seen Jesus face to face, right? He's walked with Jesus. He has, you know, he's been friends with Jesus. Uh, he is the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. I mean, he's lived a pretty incredible life. If you, you know, want, want to think about, you know, experiences alone, I mean, he has, you know, experiences in his life that are just unmatched, right? Uh, he is at the foot of the cross at that famous crucifixion scene. Jesus looks at him from the cross and, ref and references him in that moment, speaks to him in that moment. John is writing this at the end of his life after all that he's been through, all the good things he's experienced, things that we just can't imagine. He's, he's giving wisdom to the church. He's giving wisdom to us after all that he has lived through, both good and bad. He's also writing this after all the struggles he's faced. He's writing this also after all the, you know, the, the, the intense persecution that he's lived through. He's writing this after he has been, you know, boiled alive in hot oil. After he has been, you know, uh, banished uh, to the island of Patmos. He, he is 
writing this after enduring some intense persecution, things we can't even really begin to understand in our, you know, 2021 American context. And so you got to understand that because, I mean, he's been through so much, he's experienced so much, and there is really this like fatherly nature, this this very pastoral fatherly nature he takes on as he writes this letter. And he writes it to a series of churches that he has the responsibility to oversee. Churches that he's really pastoring, you know, in, in many ways from a distance. And he's writing this in, in the, you know, intent that this would be sort of a circular letter that would be passed along from church to church to church there in the, the province of Asian Minor. So, you know, his, his thought, his hope is that they would, they would read this letter out loud. You know, that, that as these words are heard, you know, as, as it enters their ears, that it would help them in terms of their, their, their spiritual formation and how to walk in the way of Jesus. That it would, it would keep them from certain things that he's concerned about. It would keep them on the right track. And so what we have seen so far is that, you know, John is, is really addressing some of the major issues that are rising up in the first century church, primarily sin and false teachers. And he's, he, we've already kind of seen that up until now in, in this series so far. Is, is he's, he's really addressing those two issues, uh, and he's seeing them as, as like a, a dominant problem facing the church. And so he, he, he's addressing those who are being led astray. Those who are considering throwing in the towel and walking away from the faith, which was an increasing issue at the time. And so he has, you know, uh, he's written about many things. And what we have learned, you know, in the first really two chapters so far is that he has dealt with sin. He's talked about how we need to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, right? He has dealt with, you know, the love for the world and, and, and has addressed this, this, this reality that there's this love for the world that, uh, that we can have. And we need to be aware of this pull uh, towards that, that, that oftentimes we can have in our life. He's addressed false teachers, right? He's calling them in chapter two, many antichrists. He has addressed, you know, uh, the fact that there are things being taught in the church that should not be taught, and he's correcting these things. He's dealing with people who are being led astray, like I said, and, and who are giving up on the faith. And I think what's interesting about all that is that there's really two primary reasons for why John writes this letter. Really, really two significant reasons for why he, he writes this. He says clearly in chapter 2, so that you do not sin, okay? And then in chapter 5, we read that he, he tells us, so that, so that you will know that you have eternal life. He doesn't want there to be any doubt. He doesn't want you to, to question whether or not you're actually saved. And I think that, that, that the reality is, is that, is that in the first century that that was common? People were wondering, hey, am, am, I, am I really saved? Like, if I died today? And, I think it's true today. I think, I think people deal with that now. Like, like am, I, am, I, am I really going to heaven? Have I lived a good enough life? And so what he seeks to do in this, this, this short book is really sort of paint a picture of what the life of someone who's saved is supposed to look like. So he says, like, here's how it looks. So then evaluate your life based on this. Because he goes, I'm writing these things so that you will know for sure that you have eternal life. And so I'm just excited about about that, I think it's, it's, a, it's a timely book to be processing together, timely book to be intaking together as a church. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, I was coming back, you know, from vacation and, and just wondering, you know, how this week was going to go for me and, and wondering, it's going to go one of two ways. Either it's going to appear like I'm sort of hyped up on caffeine and just, just uh, Matt Foley style up here, or, or it's gonna, it's gonna, I'm going to be a little out of practice. I'm not sure. So uh, I, I'm just pretty pumped about, about the, the scriptures I get to teach through today and 
I really think that if you just sort of open up yourself to the truth of God's word, it, it can have a profound impact on your life. I think that we can actually walk out of here impacted and changed. We can, we can actually walk out of here different. You know, we can walk out of here more like Jesus. And sometimes, you know, Sunday morning church attendance just becomes very mechanical and rote, doesn't it? And sometimes we can come without a whole lot of expectation. Sometimes we can come with, 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 with minimal expectation. They're going to do three songs, communion, another song, we're going to have a couple announcements, sit down, there's a sermon, we're going to go home, what's for lunch? And, and I think that we got to be, I just, just want to encourage you just to be mindful, to be careful uh, of, of doing that. Be careful of having like, like low expectations. So even right now, just sort, of, just sort of open up your spirit, open up your heart to the truth of God's word and what he wants to say uh, to us. And so there's five verses I want to teach through today, and I'm going to just read them all uh, all at once, and then we're going to break them down as we go. And so it's in First John, the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 28, and we're going to go into the first part of chapter 3. This is what it says. It says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Chapter 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Amen. So I read these verses and I just start to, to immediately pick up on, you know, really that first line there in verse 28. Particularly those words continue in him. John, John is, is communicating to these, these, these people, these, these first century Christians who are, you know, dealing with temptation, being led astray, you know, uh, all these things, and he, he's saying them, hey, dear children, like, like continue in Jesus. Continue in him. It, it, it's, it's really common language for John to use. It's language very similar to, to what we find in his gospel in John chapter 15, the very famous chapter of the vine and the branches, where he says, you know, uh, uh, which Jesus speaking, and he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. So the language that, that John is using here is very similar to the actual language Jesus uses in John's gospel, and he's saying, hey, dear children, continue in Jesus. Abide in him. Remain in him. He says, like, don't walk away. I don't want you to be led astray. Don't walk away. Don't be led astray by false teaching, false teachers. Don't be led astray by the different sins that are becoming acceptable within the church in certain Christian circles. Continue in him. Continue in Jesus. I wonder, you know, have you ever had someone drop by unannounced? You ever had someone drop by your house unannounced? You ever had, you, had, you ever had someone give you short notice that they were on their way over? They're like, you know, I'm going to be there in uh, like 60 seconds or, you know, a couple minutes. You know, going to be there really quick. How many of y'all just love that? Like, y'all just love that, right? Like, it's different when you live, when you, yeah, when you live in the city, it's different than like small town, right? I mean, uh, how many of y'all just hate that? Absolutely hate that, right? Uh, somebody dropping by your house unannounced, like, when that happens, how many of y'all know you go into immediate panic mode? Right? You go into immediate panic mode. It's like a scene in a movie, right? You're running all through the house. Right? You're stuffing everything you can in the closet, 
all the dishes in the dishwasher, you're shutting that door, you're, like, you're, you're going to figure out how to properly load that dishwasher later, but you're trying to get everything straightened up so that what? So that the house is presentable for whoever is dropping by. Uh, I remember years ago after, you know, uh, our daughter Maya was born, um, we had a situation like this where my grandma actually dropped by the house unannounced, and I was already at work, and Lindsay had just recently given birth and was recovering from, uh, you know, uh, surgery, a C-section she had had, and um, was up in bed, had no idea grandma was dropping by. All of a sudden, she starts hearing this pounding on the door and has no idea who it is, and so she's thinking she's just going to wait it out, pretend like nobody's home or like everybody's sleeping or whatever, and, and like the pounding does not stop. It, it like will, it does not. In fact, my grandma, who, who just passed away this last year, so I feel like I can talk about her now, uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, I'm just, I love my grandma. So uh, uh, she pounds on the door so hard that the clock actually falls off the wall. So Lindsay's like, okay, I think I got to get off, get, get out of bed, you know. And so she makes her way down. And, and uh, by the time she gets to the door, it takes Lindsay a long time, right? Each step, very gingerly walking. And she opens up the door and grandma's already in her car getting ready to leave and ends up, ends up seeing Lindsay comes inside. But it was completely unannounced, right? There was no expectation she was coming. And Lindsay's like, I can't believe, she's texting me, I cannot believe your grandmother is here right now, you know? She's like, only your family. And, uh, and so, <laughs> and that's, just, that's just the way it goes, right? Let me ask you this. If you're taking notes, let me ask you this. If you had the inside scoop that Jesus was going to return next week, how much of your life would you immediately begin to change? How much of your life would you begin to change? To immediately change? How much, how much would, you, would you start to get in order? What, what, what are the things that you would go, yeah, I, I think I probably ought to start addressing that. You know, maybe I shouldn't just leave that unaddressed any longer. I wonder, would you change any of your priorities? Like if you knew, if you had inside scoop, Jesus is coming back next week, would any of your priorities change? I, 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 think, I think probably, right? Are there some habits that maybe you've ignored that you would try to stop? You're like, I, I want to kind of like get myself prepared and presentable for Jesus, right? So you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and like change some things. Maybe there's a sin that you've made peace with that you would, you would go, you know what, I'm going to try to address that now. You know, I, I realize it is a bigger deal than, than you know, what I've made it out to be. Let me, just, let me just give you this thought. The amount of change you would make or the amount of change you wouldn't make to your life with this kind of insider information might reveal to you whether or not you're actually abiding. Whether or not you're actually continuing in Jesus, like John talks about here in this incredible letter. Look at these, these, these verses again, verse 28. He says, and now, dear children, what, what does he say? Continue in him. Why? Why do we continue in him? Look, so that when he appears unexpectedly, by the way, with no notice, when he appears, we may be, what's the word? Confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. We're going to unpack this here as we go. And so let me just give you some, some, some thoughts on these verses. This, this, this is what you need to know. This is like good, good doctrine right here. Okay, so when Jesus returns, there are some people who will be afraid because they never knew Jesus at all, right? That, that, we just understand that. Like, when Jesus returns, there will be some who are just terrified. They're like, oh my goodness, like, it was real. 
And as a result, like when he returns, they have absolutely no confidence whatsoever, none. They're the people who have never surrendered their lives to Jesus. These are non-believers. Now, you got to remember that the apostle John is writing this letter not to non-believers. He's writing it to first century Christian believers. He's writing it to people like you and me, believers in Jesus. He's writing it to to these people. And so what I, what I think John is actually saying here is that, is that even among the ones who do know Jesus, there will be those who are ashamed at his coming. Here's why. Because they have been living worldly and unfruitful lives. They're going to be like, oh my goodness. Like, oh my goodness. Like, like, like yeah, there's like excitement, but, but like for a split second, there's like, oh, oh my gosh. And what John is communicating here in like these first two verses is he's saying like, don't be like those people. Don't be like those people who in one moment when Jesus returns become overwhelmed by the reality that regardless of whatever else they accomplished in their life, they did not abide. They didn't abide. See, if you're taking notes, catch this thought. Those who abide in Christ are confident and they are unashamed when they think of the return of Jesus, because for them, there is nothing substantial in their lives that they would change if they knew he was coming back next week. So they're abiding in Jesus. They're they're continuing in Jesus. They're remaining in Jesus. And so what that produces in them is this high level of confidence. It, it, It rids them of all shame. There's no fear that Jesus might return tomorrow or next week. They're, they're, They're ready because they have been living rightly. You know, in a similar way to to the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul addresses something very similar, and he speaks of those in 1 Corinthians who are barely saved. I mean, it's my language, but he really talks about people who are barely saved. It is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, he says this. He says, he will suffer loss, he himself will be saved, but only one as escaping through the flames. So, so if you read this, this chapter, what you see is he's talking about like, like someone who basically like builds, builds their home, builds, a, builds a, 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 a building and uses material. And when the, when, when the flames come, when the fire comes, like it's all consumed, nothing remains. And he says like this person, you know, yeah, yeah, they're saved, they're going to heaven, but they're just like escaping through the flames. It's like they get into heaven, but they smell like smoke, right? John is talk, talking about this here and he's saying like, don't be like those people. Because, like, like where, where, where do you draw the line? Where's the difference between those who, who are barely saved and those who are almost saved? Like, where's the line? How close is the line? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to find out. So those who are barely saved are, are ones who, for at least a brief moment, the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, will be a moment of disappointment for them, at least maybe for a brief moment, rather than a moment of, like, glory and excitement. And here's why, because the disappointment is when they realize that they did not abide. The disappointment is when they realize that they chased everything else, yet they didn't abide. Let me, let me, let me just say it like this. When you abide in Jesus, you are ready for him to come at any time. You're ready. You're just ready. You're ready. So what does it mean, what does it mean to abide? Let me, let me just give you, give you some thoughts here. Abiding in Jesus means that we begin to practice right living in our lives. Righteousness. Right living. Verse 29 here says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So we know that Jesus is righteous. So then those who begin to do right things and begin to live righteous lives have been born of God. 
So the idea here is now that we are born of, of God, we're born of Jesus, our lives have radically changed in such a way that we have gone from having a disposition to sin to now having a disposition towards righteousness. In theory, right? How, how many of y'all feel that way? Right? You're like, I feel like I still have a disposition towards sin, like in a big way, right? Anybody? But actually what has happened in you, you, you you've been, you know, your spirit has been regenerated you have, you have, you're a new creation now, and, and you now have a disposition towards righteousness instead of a disposition towards sin. And so you got to understand that, that living rightly or chasing righteousness, we don't, we don't perfect this until we are with Jesus in heaven, right? We don't perfect righteousness this side of heaven. But in the meantime, we practice righteousness because we have been born of God. And so what I want to do really for the rest of, of, of the morning here is really talk about what it means to be born of God what it actually looks like to be born of God. So when someone says that someone is born of someone else, there's almost always a family resemblance, isn't there? So you're like, you're like yeah, she has eyes that look just like her mother. He has a nose, unfortunately, it looks just like his father, right? I mean, you just, you know, they, like, there's, like, there's like a family resemblance. When you've been born of someone else, there's a family resemblance. And so when you look at John's writings, when you look at his gospel, when you look at his epistles, when you look at even the book of Revelation, which he wrote as well, uh, he, he often uses family-type language. He talks about God as father, calls us children of God. He uses language like this, brother, family-type language. And that's significant because language like that carries some pretty significant implications. And so, and so you know, the children of God, as we're referred to here in 1 John and in other, many other places all throughout the New Testament, the children of God have a family resemblance to their father in heaven. They're supposed to have a family resemblance. And so because he's, he's righteous, there is supposed to be, because, of, because we're born of him, we're born of God, there's supposed to be a level of righteousness in us. There's supposed to be righteousness that we practice because we are resembling our family. We're resembling God. Now let me, let me just give you this thought because it's going to start to kind of shift uh, the morning for us right here. Look at this with me. The motive to abide and live rightly doesn't entirely come from receiving our salvation. Do we have this on the screen? Do we have this for the screen? The motive to abide and live rightly doesn't entirely come from receiving our salvation, but it also comes from our adoption into God's family and the new identity that that brings. So let me, let me, let me kind of help you understand this. So, so, you know, you, you become saved, right? I, we become saved. And there is absolutely a motivation that that brings for us to live rightly, to abide in Jesus, to do things the right way. Like, uh, you know, I mean, he, he like saved you, right? He like laid his life down for you. You know, uh, who, who does that? And so there can be this motivation just because of that type of sacrifice that's like, man, I'm absolutely going to try to live rightly. But what happens, and the reason why that can't be the entire reason for why you abide is because what happens is you can be abiding out of, out of guilt or out of debt, you can feel like, like man, that is, that is so much. Who would ever do that for somebody? And so your, your motivation for living rightly and doing, doing right things, is, 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 it's motivated out of, out of guilt or, or even out of a perceived debt that you have to Jesus. And so, and so let's read this again. The motive to abide and live rightly doesn't entirely come, or it shouldn't entirely come from just receiving our salvation, but it should also come from our adoption into God's family and the new identity that that brings. 
There is this, this like new identity that we receive as children of God that, that, that ought to motivate us, that gives us a, a, a sense of, of purpose and identity on how we live life. And so, so because of that, we're going to resemble our family. We're going to resemble our father. Like, like I, am, I am literally in this family. Like, how is that possible? That's why I would say that perhaps the most important thing about you is the family that you belong to. Perhaps the most important thing about you is the family that you belong to, the spiritual family that you belong to. I've known a lot of people over the years who have identified more with what they've done or where they've been than with the spiritual family that they have been adopted into. John says here, he says in in 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. He clarifies it. And that is what we are, by the way. We are children of God. The reason the world does not know us as children of God, right, is, uh, is that it did not know him. That's, that's, that's why. And so, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Listen, everyone who has this hope, Everyone who has this hope of being a child of God, what does he do? Purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So there is a motivation that that we have. There there is something that that, that just uh, comes out of us. There is this different drive uh, in us to live rightly because we have this hope in us that we are children of God. We're part of a different family. There's a new identity that we have been given I wonder, you know, when you look at yourself in the mirror and when you think about yourself, honestly, you know, what adjectives or labels do you apply to yourself? Maybe there are labels that you use that are based on your gender, your race, culture, occupation, physical attributes perhaps. Maybe it's personality, health, wealth, upbringing, whatever it is. What are, the, what are like the labels and the adjectives that you use to describe yourself when, you look, when it's just you and you look yourself in the mirror, I wonder, like, how do you think about yourself? How do you think about yourself? And let me ask you this. Where did you get that sense of identity? Where did you get that sense of identity? When did you decide that those were the adjectives and labels that you should apply to yourself? Was it from friends? From family? From your work, perhaps it came from even inside yourself. Maybe it was based on accomplishments, how much money you have in the bank, but how do you think about yourself and where did you get that sense of identity? Where did it actually come from? And I just, I'm just here today to tell you, I, I just am convinced that every single one of us has been named in some way or is currently being named in some way. I, I really believe that, that there are, there are competing voices, there are competing realities looking to name you and define you and name me and define me. And, and the reason why I think this message matters, I think the reason why these verses you know, are, are so important to, to really dissect and, and understand our identity as children of God is because if we can begin to discover what God thinks about us, what he names us, and, and if we can actually believe it, it will be the most satisfying answer to the question of who am I? Who am I? The most satisfying answer to that question. If we can actually listen to him and hear it and believe it, 
I think, you know, what we long for most, whatever that is, like the deep soul level, what we actually long for most, we can actually find when we, when we hear what God calls us. The problem is that there are competing voices and names that are seeking to define, and I want to kind of just explain that to you. Uh, I want to show you what I mean. If you're taking notes, look at this. Culture is actively looking to name us. Culture is actively looking to name us. Charles Taylor in his book, Sources of the Self. Anybody familiar with Charles Taylor? Uh, just, a, just an incredible, uh, you know, authority on things like anthropology, issues like what we're dealing with here right now. Uh, describes uh, in his book, Sources of the Self, the ways that cultures throughout history have shaped our identity to benefit the society. So in, in this book, Taylor basically says that when you grow up in any culture, that that culture is, is seeking to form you in a certain way. They're na- it's naming you. It's, it's labeling you. It does this so that you know what's valued. It does this so that you know what's respected, so that you know what's honored in that society. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples in the Old Testament. One is Joseph. Joseph... His name, given by his family, it's really, it's really like a, a God-given name, means that uh, he will add or he will increase. Well, if you know the story of, of Joseph, you know that he was uh, you know, attacked by his brothers. He was sold into slavery by his brothers in Egypt. And, uh, and he, he grows up uh, really as a, as a young slave and, and finds favor in Potiphar's house. Well, what happens? As he gets to a place of high favor, he gets accused of the unthinkable that he has you know, rapes Potiphar's wife, and so he is thrown back into prison. And he's there for a long period of time until someone remembers that David has a gift, right, of interpreting dreams. Potiphar, Potiphar has had, or I'm sorry, Pharaoh has had a, uh, a dream that he can't understand. I mean, his, his uh, uh, men of wisdom or fortune tellers, whoever they are, they, they can't understand it. And so they go and they get Joseph. They bring him out of prison. Joseph, miraculously, he interprets the dream. And what happens in this, in this story is that, is that Pharaoh renames Joseph based on this encounter. He renames him Zaphath-Paniah, which means revealer of secrets. So no longer is, is Joseph known now as, you know, he will add or he will increase, which really has to do with his God-given purpose of, of what is going to come through him and his life and his family for the Hebrew people uh, but, but now he is he's redefined and he is renamed according to what Pharaoh values most about him. He's just a revealer, revealer of secrets. He's just a revealer of secrets. And so this is the Egyptian culture's way of renaming him and redefining him in a way that is separate or is apart from God's purposes for his life. All you are is just a revealer of secrets. And it's a name, it's an identity that, that if he's not careful, he's gonna, just, he's gonna just become consumed by and think that that's all he is and he's going to forget that there is another name on his life. There's another identity on his life. There's a God-given identity on his life. We see this also in the Old Testament when, when we read about Daniel. Daniel and, and you know, many people, they are exiled from Jerusalem and they are taken to Babylon. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are like the best of the best. They are young men at the time. I mean, maybe even, maybe even like, you know, uh, yeah, adolescent age. And they bring with them not just the indoctrination from their culture, but they bring their Hebrew names with them. And what happens is King Nebuchadnezzar 
in all, with all of his narcissism, right? Just an interesting case of narcissism if you want to read about it. I mean, just an interesting guy. He wants to sort of retrain these guys. So these, these, these are going to be young boys who, who are given much responsibility and influence in his kingdom, but he wants to train them. He wants to uh, help them unlearn so that they can relearn the ways of the Babylonian culture. And so what he does immediately is he renames them. And so for, and the reason why he does this is because each of them have names, Hebrew names, that, 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 that refer to the Hebrew God, the God that you and I worship and serve. I mean, the, the suffix to Daniel's name is El, E-L, which, which means God in the Hebrew language. And so Nebuchadnezzar renames Daniel. He renames him Belteshazzar which means Bel protects his life, and Bel is a Babylonian god. Bel protects his life. He's renaming him according to what is valued in Babylon. No longer will you be named after your god, now you will be named after our gods, is really what is happening with Daniel's life. I think that the same can often happen to us. I'll give you those examples, because I think, I think the same can happen to us as well, where the culture wants to name us, the culture wants to shape us, it wants to determine our purpose and our value in society. It does this based on its own views on what is valuable and good and excellent. And too often we can take these names on for ourselves and we can think, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a doctor, that's all I'll ever be. I'm an accountant, that's all I'll ever be. I'll always be that. This is where I get my identity from. I work with my hands, this is what I do, this is what I'll always do, this is where I get my sense of purpose and my sense of identity from. So then what happens if you get into a car accident and you're a doctor and that car accident has left you now physically unable to serve as a doctor anymore? You might suddenly feel as if you have no purpose, no identity, because the role you fit in society, you can't fill that role anymore. So this is why I think it, there, there's, there's massive danger in getting our names and our identities from culture. Because now we have to live up to it. If you allow yourself to get your, your, your identity and, and, and to get your name from culture, you now have to live up to something that you might not always be able to do. And additionally, these names or identities from culture may not necessarily always reflect God's purposes and God's desires for your life. Similar to Joseph and similar to Daniel, these new identities did not represent God's purposes for their life. And so I just wonder, you know, every at today, I wonder, like, what have others, including the culture at large, named you? And how might this be contrary to how God sees you? How might it be contrary to how God sees you? What if the names others have given you have nothing to do with God's identity or purpose for your life. Secondly, when I'm talking about competing voices and names that are seeking to define us, secondly, let me give this to you. I think we also tend to name ourselves. So culture names us for sure. But I think we also tend to name ourselves. It's not just culture, but especially in our modern society, especially in, like, in our modern post-Christian culture, I think that we are encouraged all day long to just discover ourselves and then present our true selves to the world and then just be your true authentic self. 
We are encouraged to just discover ourselves, to figure out who we are, and then define who we are. Well, the problem with naming ourselves, if you're listening to me, is that you and I often cannot figure out who we really are. And the identities that we make for ourselves are often just as fragile and not necessarily accurate as, as the identities and things that culture wants to bestow upon us. Let me, let, me, let, me just, let me just give you an example. Like in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth, you know, Naomi is a classic example of this. If you, don't, you know her story, you know, Naomi uh, went through massive tragedy. You know, her, 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 you know, her husband and her two sons all die. And she's left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Right? And, 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 you know, she tells them both to, like, move back to their families and, 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 and all of that, back to where they came from because they, they weren't Hebrew. And, and uh, you know the story, Ruth decides she's going to stay with her mother-in-law. She says, you know, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And they, they, they go on. And it, it, when you read the book of Ruth, there's something very interesting that takes place because Naomi redefines herself. She, she tells Ruth to just stop calling her Naomi, but now call her Mara, which means bitter. She's like, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me that. Just call me bitter. Just call me Mara. That, that, that's, that's, that's who I am. Like, look at my life. Look at my story. Look at everything I have faced, everything I've lived and gone through. I don't want to be known as Naomi anymore. I want to be known as Mari. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just bitter. I'm bitter that this is my story. I'm bitter that this is how my story looks. I, I would have never written it this way, but evidently God felt like it should go this way. And so I'm just bitter. Would you, why, don't you just, why don't you just call me that? What's interesting about her story is that as you read the book of Ruth, like, a few chapters later, everything changes. Her story radically improves. But in, but in this specific chapter, she had no idea. She had no way of knowing that right around the corner, in God's you know, providential plan for her life, like things were going to shift. Things were going to move. And so I think that like, like Naomi, whether it's positive naming or whether it is negative naming, when we name ourselves, we are defining what we think is going to be true about our future. But that future might be very different than what God has in mind. And so I think it's, it's true to say that most of us, if not all of us, have an internal picture of ourselves that dominates really every aspect of our lives. Our self-image, we think like this is who I am. Well, the problem with that is that I think the majority of people in the church and outside the church live with a carefully built, distorted image of themselves. It's carefully built, carefully constructed, distorted view and image of who they really are. And so I ask you just a couple of questions here, you know, on, on this thought is like, what have you named yourself? Not just like what others have named you or what culture has named you. Like, what have you, what have you said about yourself? What have you, what have you actually named yourself? What identity have you taken on and said, yeah, that's, that, that's me? What have you determined about your own identity? Or about God's purpose for your life? And how have you said that to yourself over and over and over again in the mirror? What does that look like? So what I said to you a few minutes ago is I said, you know, there are competing voices, competing realities when it comes to your identity and mine. You know, there's the culture. There's ourself, right? But what are they competing with? Well, they're competing with each other, but they're also competing with God, and which is why I want to I kind of finish with this thought here today um, and, and, and try, to, try to wrap this up. You know, God has a name for us. So not only does culture 
actively seek to name you, not only do we tend to name ourselves, but like God has a name for you. God has an identity for you, and it says this in, in, in 1 John 3, 1. It says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called, what is it? Children of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So I have this strong belief that similar to how culture will, will seek to name us and similar to how uh, you know, we tend to name ourselves, that, that God is trying to name us as well. God actually names us. And so I think that the identity that you long for, the security, you know, the love, the respect, the validation, the value, the purpose, that that can actually be found as you begin to listen to what God has named you. And the reality here is that God has been naming us from the beginning. When you look at the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, we see just a couple instances where God begins to name us. Genesis 1.27 is, is where he says, you know, now let us come and make man in our image. So there, there's an identity piece given right there in the garden that you and I would be image bearers of God. That, that is like an identity piece. That is a huge part of who we are. Just a four verses later, after God has created man in his image, he, he dis, makes a distinction between humanity and all uh, all the rest of creation by, by calling it very good. Everything else he said was good, but humanity, man, he said was very good. And so right there in the garden, there's, there's like a couple pieces to your identity and mine that are given by God, our creator. One is that we are image bearers, and two, that we're very good. Well, the problem with that, the struggle for us as humans is that right after Genesis 1 and 2, we get to Genesis chapter 3 which was when we as humanity essentially decided that we want to name ourselves now. Right? When, when it's, it's when we decided, you know, that we, we want to determine what we're like. And, and, you know, Adam and Eve, we want to be like God, which is interesting because they really already were kind of like God because they were created in the very image of God. But they're baited and they're, they're tempted into this thinking that, like, you can actually be God. So what happens is, is, is we make these choices and then we put on our own name and we make our own decisions. And I think this is where we fall away from God's purposes and plans and uh, where we experience sin and where identity is completely lost. But the good news to all of this is that God, through Jesus wants to reconcile himself to us and reclaim our original identity. He wants to make us his image bearers again. He wants to make us very good. But in order for that to happen, the New Testament teaches that we have to be washed clean. We have to be made righteous again. We have to be declared holy. And the only way that happens, if you're looking at, at, at the screen and you want to take this note, the only way this happens is that, you know, not only did Jesus die on the cross and rise from the dead and give us forgiveness, but listen, he also put his name on us. I don't, I don't want to diminish anything about, like, the good news of the gospel here, right? But, you know, you know Jesus giving his life for us, you know, I'm not diminishing it in any way, the cross, death, resurrection. But, like, the complete gospel is, is, is that he also, in that moment, he put his name on you. You know what that means? Do you know the significance of what that means? 
When he puts his name on you, it means that our identity is now linked with his identity. When, when Jesus' name is put on you, it now means that your identity is linked with his. Let me just give you a few verses that are not on the screen. Colossians 3.3 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. That, this, is why, this is why we struggle with the fact that, like, you know, we have, we're supposed to apparently have this type of identity, but we just know there's, like, there's like issues in us. We, we forget that we're hidden in Christ. We forget that, like, like, like because we're hidden, hidden in Christ, we now have the righteousness of Jesus, that God looks at you. He does not see your own, you know, righteousness or whatever you could conjure up. He sees you through his son, Jesus. He sees the blood of Jesus on you. You bear the name. Jesus puts his name on you. 1 Peter 4.16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. Praise God that you bear his name. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These are incredible verses. The reason why I think they're so incredible, the reason for, for why I think they should mean so much to us is that you and I through faith can be hidden in Christ, we can be washed and made righteous. We can bear the name of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus, we can be reclaimed as image bearers. But not only are we through Jesus given back our identity as image bearers, and not only are we through Jesus given back our identity as very good, you see, God goes like way beyond this. And he calls us his children. He goes way beyond it and calls us his children. And I get it, I get it, I get it, you know, like, it's not always easiest for us to understand this, and it's not always easiest, easy for us to embrace this. Because at first glance, being called the children of God can seem a bit uncomfortable, and it can seem a bit unnecessary, right? Doesn't it, it doesn't seem like a little unnecessary to you? Like, it can be a whole lot easier for us to get on board with the idea of, of being saved or get on board with the idea of, like, needing to be saved, needing salvation. Like, I can get on board with that because I know my problems. I know my issues. I know, I know how, like, lost I've been and am and whatever. I know that I, I, I was saved. I'm still being saved. And, 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 you know, I need to continue to be saved as I go throughout life. I just know, like all of us, right? So I can, it's easy for me to get on board with the idea of being saved or needing salvation, I think we can, get in a much easier way, get on board with a person coming along and helping someone, even, even saving someone who is in great need, coming along and helping someone whose life is in complete disaster. But like, who would actually go as far as to then make that person a part of their family? That, like, who, who, does, who does that? That doesn't make any sense. And so I think the tension sometimes when we, when we actually hear what our identity really is as children of God, like, like, like we hear it like, yeah, you know, I've heard that, you know, yeah. But for some of us, we don't actually own that identity. We don't actually like, like, like lay hold of what that really means for us because there's a lot of it that just feels a bit uncomfortable, a bit unnecessary. I'd rather take on an identity of like a sinner. 
I'd rather take on an identity of just being a flawed human being that needed to be saved and rescued out of the pit of hell. Because who comes along and saves somebody and then, and then, and then says, hey, why don't you just come be part of my family now? Who, who ever does that? And that's the rub, isn't it? That's the discomfort because it just seems so unnecessary. I love this quote by J.I. Packer uh, in his book, Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, that means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. See, the greatness of God's love, if you're taking notes, is shown by how he includes us in his family. And it can be easy for us to think that, you know, God just you know, looked down on this lost humanity and looked down on us and he just had all of this like pity and he just had all this compassion and so just sent Jesus to the cross. Well, that is partially true. There was pity. There was compassion. But you see, compassion and pity was likely all it needed to take. That's like, that's like all it probably really needed to take. Jesus the Father to have pity and compassion on a lost humanity. That seems like enough. We're not justified based on the family we're a part of. We're justified based on what Jesus did on the cross and are accepting him as our Savior. It, it just seems like passion and compassion and pity would have been enough. It's likely all that it would have taken. All, all God needed to set forth a plan of salvation was just pity and compassion, and yet he goes way beyond compassion and pity. He chooses to bring us into his family, y'all. He chooses to bring us into his family. Look at this, the Gospel of John, the same writer, different book, Gospel of John chapter 1, 12 through 13, says this, he says, Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. As I'm closing this morning, I just wonder, I just, I just wonder, how often do we forget that we are sons and daughters? Like how often does that like slip our mind? How often does that get out of focus for you? How often do we actually forget that we are sons and daughters of the living God? How often do we allow ourselves to become defined by other things and defined in other ways? Look at this thought. No person ever lives beyond what they think God has called them. Nobody. Nobody ever lives beyond what they think God has called them, which is why, you know, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that, like, myself... Uh, Pastor Josh, like we have worked hard to try to help people unwind from distorted views of God and distorted views of themselves so they can understand like who they really are. Because like this, 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 this Christian life, it will not make sense to you. It, it will not be life-giving. It, it, I mean, it, it'll just be 
It'll feel like in the Old Testament when David is wearing like Saul's armor about to go fight Goliath, it'll feel like that. Like you're just, it just doesn't fit right. If you don't catch this piece and get this piece and believe this piece, that you are absolutely a child of God. No person ever lives beyond what they think God has called them. And so what you think God thinks of you, what you think God calls you, is going to determine how you live your life. It's going to determine it. And so if you don't think God loves you, then you won't live as someone who is loved. It's, it's just true. If you don't think God loves you, you will not live as someone who is loved. If you don't think that God has a purpose for your life, then you will live according to any and every desire that you have. You know, you're just sort of wandering aimlessly. I'm just here to sort of, you know, kind of take up some oxygen and live for X amount of years. If you don't believe God has a purpose for your life, you're just going to do whatever you want to do. And if you don't think that you're a child of God, you know, you, know, you, know what, you know what happens? When you don't think that you're a child of God, you don't really believe that. You just know that in theory, but not, you don't like own that and possess that. That doesn't, that's not how you actually like see yourself when you look in the mirror. You know what happens? One of the first things that people lose is they, 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 they do not pray very bold prayers. So if you don't think you're a child of God, you won't pray a bold prayer. You will not go into the secret place. In fact, and if you do, you, you, you will feel like you don't, you don't belong there. You'll feel like just a guest. You'll feel like someone who just sort of stopped by unannounced for a moment. I don't want to intrude. I don't want to, you know, impose. But when you're a child of God and you know it, you believe it, it like defines you, you pray differently because you know that you have access to the Father. You know, like, like Emily mentioned in Hebrews 4, that you can come before the throne of God with great boldness because of who you are, right? I mean, my kids, my kids, they, they, they are fine with interrupting me, right? They, they do it all the time. Some of you witness it. Like, I'm out here shaking your hand, and they're like, hey, where are we going for lunch? I'm like, just wait a second, right, you know? Like, they don't care. They really don't care because I'm their dad, and they know whose they are. They know, they know the position and the role and the identity that they have in my life and they know that they can come to me at any time. And if you don't know and you don't believe and think that you are a child of God, you will not pray bold prayers. You just won't. You're gonna live according to the name that you give yourself if you aren't careful, which is why I think it's so important that we learn to lean into the name that God has given us so that we can experience the life that God has for us the life that God has planned for us and not just miss out on, on all of his love and all of his blessings, you know? So I think that's good. I just have one question. Why don't you stand with me? I just have one question for you. Is it possible, everybody up here, just, just give me one more second here. You gotta catch this. Last question, is it possible you have been call, that you have been calling yourself by the wrong name? Is it possible? Is it possible that you don't actually know yourself the way you really are? That you don't see yourself the way God sees you? Is it possible that you've been calling yourself by the wrong name? that your whole motivation for living rightly and trying to do the good Christian life has been based more out of just 
the blood that was shed for you, the sacrifice on the cross, which is good and good and good, but you, you're doing it more out of debt, more out of obligation. Is it possible that maybe for some of you, you have not embraced fully your identity as a child of God and what that really means? That you've been adopted into the family of God and, and, and maybe for some of you, you've yet to really have that radically transform just your, your entire experience of life. He calls you his own. Would you just bow your heads with me this morning? I just want to close out in prayer. If you're here today and like, like this is absolutely you, this is absolutely you. We're not going to take long here, but you would say, Pastor Jordan, 100%, there are like other things in this life right now that are defining me. There are other things that I am known by, defined by, that, that, that likely have nothing to do with the purposes and plans that God has for my life. There, there, there are names that, that like culture have given me, names that other people have given me, names I've given myself. And right now today, I, I just, I just want to listen and embrace the name that God has for me. If that's you today, I just want to see your hand. I want to pray for you. I want to just declare some truth over your life. This is you right now. Absolutely, 100%. Amen, I see your hands, I see your hands. I see your hands. Father, in the name that is above all names, in the name of Jesus right now, I pray for breakthrough, I pray for freedom, I pray for transformation in Jesus' name. Wherever there is a false or distorted identity or image represented in this place that has stood itself up in our lives, I pray that that thing right now, we speak to it, that it comes tumbling down in the name of Jesus. I pray with authority, I pray with the power of the Spirit of God right now that anything, anything that has set itself up against, against the purposes and the plans of God for our life would be torn down, it would be humbled in Jesus' name. I pray for the mind of Christ on every person under the sound of my voice. I pray for fresh thoughts in Jesus' name, for the renewing of minds in Jesus' name. God, any place in here right now, any, any person in here right now who just has, has struggled with this concept of actually being a child of God and the implications that that brings, Lord, would you just, would you just set them free in this place? Would you put your arms around them in, in Jesus' name? Help them sense your love, your compassion. Help them, help them just understand in this moment how you pursue them with just a radical love. And just help us walk out of here different, just with a whole different, a whole different posture, head held high, a whole different posture because there's a new sense of belonging. There's, a, there's something that's shifted in us. I don't identify anymore with where I've been or what I've done. I know all that, 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 that is in my past, but I identify now that I have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. I have been set free and I have been adopted into God's gracious family. God, may that be the identity that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, when we evaluate where we're at in life, that is what matters most. That is what we care about most. Let everything else just function and flow out of that, God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.